You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 20th of November 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Australian journalist Latika Burke joins me in the studio to flip through the front pages. Plus, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, rounds up what we learned this week. We learned this week that France had changed its flag. A bit. Well, sort of. After a fashion. Bit from column A, bit from column B, and so forth. And we hear about a taxi shortage in Istanbul. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Poland has accused Belarus of trucking hundreds of migrants back to the border, only hours after clearing camps at a frontier. The accusation suggests the crisis has not been resolved by an apparent change of tack by Minsk, which on Thursday cleared the main camps by the border and allowed the first repatriation flight to Iraq in months. A jury acquitted teenager Kyle Rittenhouse on Friday of murder in the fatal shooting of two men during racial justice protests in a decision that ignited fierce debate about gun rights and the boundaries of self-defence in the United States. The case has split the nation, with many pointing out the discrepancy between the law enforcement's treatment of the armed white militia supporter and anti-racism protesters. And with concern over the safety of Chinese tennis player Peng Shui growing into a global cause, the International Olympic Committee could be pushed into taking a hard line with the 2022 Beijing Olympic hosts. Former doubles world number one Peng has not been seen or heard from publicly since she said on Chinese social media on November the 2nd that a former vice premier coerced her into sex and that they later had an on-off consensual relationship. I'm Georgina Godwin, and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, I have a friend in the studio. She is Latika Burke. She's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And of course, you will know her because she's a frequent contributor. <laughs> Welcome back to the studio. It's always lovely to be here, Georgina. Uh, Latika, the headlines, of course, we're looking at that uh, shocking story about <coughs> the tennis player, uh, the Chinese tele- tennis player, Peng Shui. And... Uh, uh, what's been startling about this is the level of support she's getting from the tennis playing community. But perhaps we, you could start with just recapping what the story is. Georgina, this is <clears throat> a fascinating story, um, not least because of the campaign that's been gathering force around the world. Um, and I think it's about to culminate over the next couple of hours or, or if not the next two days. Uh, but also what this tells us going forward about how we view Chinese sport and how we look at the Winter Olympics coming up. So let's go right back to the start when she posts on Weibo uh, about this consensual affair that she's had and that she was coerced into sex. Now, this is probably the closest thing we've seen in China to Me Too. And what do you do when you have a social movement and you have women who've been travelling the world, have seen how this movement has taken over in in countries where she's played tennis and uh, perhaps she's chatted about this with fellow female tennis stars herself, Um, and then she feels the victim of this. What happens in China? Well, they quickly erased her post on Weibo when it was posted. I think it was within minutes, I think four minutes, 
And then she was disappeared. We have not seen or heard from her since. Now, what we have heard and seen are some statements purporting to be from her. And uh, last week uh, we, we saw this incredible email supposedly written by her that was sent to the WTA chief, Simon Stevens. A um, couple of problems with this email, Georgina. It began, hello, everyone and was supposedly addressed to Simon Stevens. It's pretty bizarre to think of somebody uh, writing a letter to, say, your good self, Georgina, and and prefacing it with, hello, everyone. (laughs) Um, The other uh, remarkable thing was that this email, it was a picture that was posted by CTGN, which is obviously one arm of Chinese state media. Uh, They were the people who obtained it and posted it and released it in English language to um, the rest of the world on, on Twitter. And there's a cursor right in the middle of one of the words, and I think it is, which kind of suggests that perhaps uh, this was not something that was a sent copy of an email. This was something that was written and in progress by whoever screen capped it and then posted it onto the CTGN Twitter account. So it's very sus. Now, we've had some photos emerge over the last few days on WeChat of from an account purporting to be hers, uh, which shows her happy and well and uh, in her home having some downtime. No one believes this. And this is where the rubber really hits the road because we have seen a string of tennis players, starting with Billie Jean King, uh, right up to Serena Williams the other night and yesterday Andy Murray, all coming out saying, we'd like to know where she is. Thank you very much. We're very concerned about this. Um, And please, China, show us her safe and well. Now, overnight, the the White House has also become involved and they have said we would like to see independent proof of her whereabouts, that she is alive, safe and well. But what's really interesting, Georgina, is that it's actually been the tennis movement that has taken on this cause. And the WTA, firstly, the Women's Association and then the WTA itself have been fantastic in really mounting support for her. Um, And then the tennis fraternity seems to have come together in a way that I think the political world has not been able to address some of these previous cases. If you consider how the two Michaels of Canada were detained in China for so many years until the the Huawei case in in Canada was resolved with the executive there, um, there was no hope, there was no light. Overnight, uh, one of the state media journalists in China has said, don't worry, everyone, we're about to see uh, Peng Shui and we'll see her very soon. So it looks like this campaign has worked. Mm. And really, really, I think significantly, this all comes before the Winter Olympics next year in Beijing. We know that there are serious movements within Western countries to have the government issue a diplomatic boycott of those games. Obviously, that's not going to prevent the athletes taking part. But it would mean that China will not get, say, Prince William or Prince Charles attending uh, the ceremony in Beijing and, and giving it that kind of seal of royal approval that that image might might have displayed, and it would be a really serious blow for China. So these are decisions that governments are weighing up, and I think that this this case could not have come at a worse time for Beijing. Mm. And, I mean, it's it's it, as you say, it's fascinating that the tennis movement's got involved because, of course, that it, it has so many high-profile people, and that's where you really touch people because each one, I mean, Serena Williams or whoever else, have millions and millions of fans, and that's where the pressure comes. That's right, and even if you're only 
loosely involved or loosely aware of kind of what goes on in China or, you know, maybe you're aware of the pandemic and you think um, China rules the world and you're not particularly happy about it, for a voter in a suburban region or regional outback place in Australia, suddenly this becomes quite real because, hey, that champion tennis player that I love and follow is tweeting about this thing and what's that all about? And this is where uh, China really does mistake the power of Western uh, soft diplomacy here and and recruiting all these tennis stars into what appears to be quite an organic campaign Mm. but with such momentum and force is is really a success for the West. Absolutely. Uh, Latika, do stay with us because we'll come back and have a look through the papers again right after we've heard from your countryman, uh, our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, who's here to assess the week's weird and wonderful news stories. We learned this week that France had changed its flag. A bit. Well, sort of. After a fashion. Bit from column A, bit from column B, and so forth. Come on. Just get on with it. We learned that the blue in the red, white and blue had been somewhat darkened, at least in the tricolours flying over the LSE Palace, and that this appeared to be a policy decision rather than the consequence of a mishap with the washing machine. But what, we wondered, could it all mean other than an excellent excuse to use the word vexillology in a radio monologue? What? That's just not That's not a word. What is Can you repeat that? Glad you asked. It's the study of flags. Anyway, we learned after looking into it a bit, because we're good like that, that the blue had been lightened back in the 1970s on the orders of then-president and still holder of the record for the most French name in France, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who sought harmony with the shade of blue on the EU flag. The darker blue was the original colour on the standard brandished by the mob who had stormed the Bastille, declared the rights of man, bumped off Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette and in due course each other, and sundry such revolutionary stuff. As for what lies behind the alteration, we learned that some rune readers believe that President Emmanuel Macron is signalling a pre-election pivot to nationalism and or offering a subtle rebuke to Brussels, while others suspect that maybe he just thinks the darker colour looks nicer, but possibly most significantly we also learned that the change was actually made like a year ago and nobody even noticed until just now, so maybe what we've learned is that it's possible to overthink things. Which, moving seamlessly along, is something that certain sectors of society have insisted on doing since the advent of freely available vaccines against COVID-19, by which we mean that thinking vis-a-vis the subject could probably have stopped around the point of, hey, a freely available vaccine against COVID-19, cool, and certainly well before, this is clearly a nefarious plot concocted by Bill Gates, George Soros, and, I don't know, the surviving members of the Jackson 5, to implant humanity with 5G tracker nanobots or whatever mad drivel I've just read on my dingbat uncle's Facebook page.
In New Zealand, we learned this tendency have been making their case in part with renditions of the Kamate Haka, as performed in the background by New Zealand's rugby team, the All Blacks. And we learned that the Ngati Toa tribe, custodians of the Kamate, are just not having its appropriation by their foil-hatted fellow citizens and have instructed them to knock it off, or words to that effect. We also learned, for what it may be worth, that the All Blacks themselves are fully vaccinated. Getting the vaccine is very easy. We've all had the two doses. It protects us all and it keeps us together. I'm not doing it for just me. And they did not appear to be suffering much in the way of ill effects when they ran over Wales the other week. Hey, come on. <laughs> We also learned that the consumption of Western civilization by idiot whimsy continues apace, specifically in this instance by the launch of a television station aimed at dogs, or more accurately, at their limitlessly gullible owners. Dog TV, as it is imaginatively named, is not, almost regrettably, intended principally as a vehicle for pun-based programming of the order of Barks and Recreation, Game of Bones, or Brooklyn K99. Look, you bought the ticket, you take the ride. Dog TV is rather intended to provide Fido with something to watch when left alone in the house. The project, we learned, makes assorted claims of scientific rigour to justify the subscription fee, but we, for one sideways look at the news monologue, believe that you could hold your hound's enraptured attention just as easily with a biscuit in a glass case. Happy to help. And slash but, we learned that the money we've just saved you on your dog TV subscription might enable you to pay an actual dog for Madonna's old house. No, really stick with us. Gunther VI, a German shepherd, is the current beneficiary of a trust established by eccentric... Yeah, let's go with eccentric Countess Carlotta Liebenstein, who died in 1992, leaving her vast fortune to her incumbent pet, Gunther III. Gunther III's heirs have since enjoyed quite the life. Gold collars, private jets, not that they care about any of this because they're dogs. The trust which manages the Liebenstein loot on behalf of Gunther III's successors bought Madonna's Miami mansion a couple of decades back for US $7.5 million and is now attempting to unload it for just shy of $32 million. Gunther, incidentally, sleeps in Madonna's former bedroom on a red velvet bed. So we learned that Madonna has been outwitted in the real estate racket by a dog, and that perhaps she should henceforth be known as the... Materia, old girl. <laughs> For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin and with me in the studio is Latika Burke. She is an Australian journalist and her pronouns, I believe, are she <laughs> forward slash her, are they? I've never identified myself with a pronoun, I must admit, Georgina, but I do notice with increasing regularity, uh, particularly when you're liaising with government departments, say the Foreign Office, there's a, um, a welt now of email signatures of she, him, her, I'm losing track. Um, but no, I, I don't personally um, use the pronouns. But Do you think it's important to know the gender of the person to whom you, with whom you're communicating? Well, I looked this up once because I became very perplexed about why I was seeing all these on emails. And then I 
once I did a bit of research, came to understand that it's not so much about your gender. It's about enabling those who choose uh, to to ascribe to a gender or, or whatever, um, enabling them to have the safe space to do so, which, hey, I'm all, I'm all fine with. Uh, not so much the French. No, French are very cross about this, aren't they? Well, this is a fascinating story. So it's covered in the Financial Times today and uh, keeping up our, our French scene there from Andrew. But this has been raging on for a week or so now. Um, in the French language, of course, which is gendered, what do you do when you start having a backlash against the use of gendered language? Well, they've come up with a compromise uh, for one of the pronouns, uh, il, elle. Um, they've melded it into I-E-L. And, Georgina, how would we pronounce that, do yeah. you think? Yel, maybe. Yel, yel. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't sound <laughs> but very attractive, does it? Since a, a listener wrote to me a couple of weeks ago and said, you're massacring the French language, please stop. I'm not oh. even going to Well, uh, I think if um, we've massacred the, the French language, Georgina, together we're about to bury it because <laughs> this is not a graceful um, pronunciation. And so say we all say a lot of very, very high-profile French people, including Brigitte Macron, uh, the the president's wife and a former teacher, including, of course, his own uh, teacher. Um, She has said that this yell, or however we choose to pronounce it, um, which was added into the French dictionary, Le Petit Robert, is something that goes against the beauty of the French language, uh, aside from your massacring, <laughs> Georgina. <Yeah. laughs> uh, and, and we've had quite a significant backlash. Uh, the country's education minister has also come out very strongly against it. Lots of MPs are outraged and they want this word eradicated mm. from the French language. But Georgina, this really does beg an interesting or, or put up a really interesting clash for the French because... You might have these conservative views or some more old-fashioned views aimed at preserving the legacy of the language. But let's be honest, the social movement is against it. Uh, Younger, particularly millennials, will seek out these pronouns and even if they're not official, they will use them. Mm. I mean, I think all kudos to the French for actually coming up with a brand new word. I mean, here in in, in, in the English speak, in the Anglo world, we tend to use they, which annoys me just because it's not <laughs> grammatical. Uh, and I wish that we would come up with a completely different word. In fact, there was one which was MX, but nobody knew how to pronounce it. So it was never really, never really adopted. Yes, yeah, so that's like Elon Musk calling his daughter a formula or something, wasn't it? <laughs> it becomes a little difficult to um, pronounce it when you don't have a nice flowing word. Um, So we'll see what happens. But uh, I mean, obviously, of course, it's worth pointing out that uh, Brigitte Macron is making these comments as her husband heads into an election period. We're yet to hear from the president himself what he thinks about this. Uh, But it is also quite interesting to see France here launching a bit of a, um, a fight back against the culture wars. This is something we heavily associate with the Republican right in the United States. States. We see a little bit of it in Central Europe, I think. We certainly see it in some quarters in the UK here. But of course, it's very, very heavily contested with a very strong uh, left um, movement here who who do ascribe to this. And and to be honest, as we jokingly prefaced uh, this conversation with, but but quite seriously, lots of people use this. A lot of people uh, do 
define themselves uh, or, or open their their introductory or email signatures or on Twitter or however they choose to um, uh, describe themselves, they will begin with she, her or he, him. Mm. And that is the way that the climate's going. Now, I don't think everyone is going to do this. I don't think we'll ever see a world where there's multi-generational take-up of this. Um, but you see it everywhere across society, including with fashion. Gender-neutral fashion is huge. Uh, I don't know if you shop much online, but there's gender-neutral options now everywhere where you go. But, I mean, isn't that that's progress? Isn't that great? Of course. I mean, well, even if you don't like it or, or not, however you choose to describe it, it's happening. Yeah. It's there. It's real. So it's going to be in the marketplace. It's going to be in the conversations. It's going to be used in slang and new words created. What level of credence or official backing governments or, you know, departments or organisations choose to give it? Well, it's up to them. But it, it does feel like it's a tide they can't really turn back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just dipping a toe into kind of slightly contentious waters <laughs> here. Um, but I, I mean, I, it's absolutely fine. Be, be who you want. But I think don't cancel a gender, which I think a lot of women feel that they are being forced out of their own space at the moment. Yeah, I think this is a really difficult balance. And this is where it really takes hold in politics, particularly um, in the US, which I think was kind of the first to really uh, struggle with this issue. And that's that's being very contested now in politics. Interestingly, I went to a talk with Arthur Brooks, um, Harvard University professor who who is doing a lot of work on this. And he was saying this week that one of the huge uh, reactions or, or outcomes that's that's taking place in the United States as a result of the pandemic is parents overhearing what their children are being taught on Zoom. And for the first time, they're understanding that actually uh, critical race theory is being taught in schools. Um, some of these ideas are not necessarily what the parents themselves would agree to. And it goes against assurances they've been given from teachers' unions about what children are being taught in the classrooms. And he says this is actually leading a big um, backlash against uh, the left in the United States. And we, we saw that in a recent election in Virginia. So it's one to watch. Obviously, uh, extremism in all cultural and societal issues and, and political issues is not where anyone wants to be. And there is a balance to be found. I'm not sure that the American political psyche has found that balance or is particularly even capable or willing of finding that balance. But I think we will see a, a settling in over time of this. But it's a ferocious debate if it's handled on, on the extreme ends, but I don't think that's exactly where most of society is. And I think actually most of society is quite capable of having these intelligent conversations between themselves very quietly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, The Lancet is not normally a publication we would go to uh, to, to discuss the news, but in fact, it had a really, really interesting cover. Oh, well, it was a shocker. Uh, they they put on their front page um, uh, an article about uh, bodies with vaginas. Now, I've never, ever seen a medical um, uh, publication issue a, a story on men with penises. Or bodies ever. with, oh, bodies, penis. with, bodies with yeah. penises. Yeah. Um, so it's this reduction of women to... to Their genitalia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you will see that increasingly become litmus tests, I think, in, in uh, publications. And there will be, you know, that, that was very strongly pushed back against. And so 
It's all, again, it's all about that balance. And obviously that was one step hugely too far. Yeah, so interesting. As you say, this debate is going to run and <laughs> run. Uh, unlike taxis, which apparently you can't get for love nor money, particularly in Istanbul. So let's cross to Ruth Michelson, who's there. Uh, and uh, she says that the current taxi shortage there has deep political roots. <laughs> Imagine this scene. You're on the street and you're trying to get a taxi. And it's not working. You keep trying, frantically hailing down cabs and trying to get them to stop. All of them are full, won't take passengers, or the drivers refuse to take you to your destination. You open your chosen ride-hailing app and try to get a cab. Nothing. There are no cabs and you're going nowhere. By this point, you're about ready to give up and go home or walk. This is often the situation in Istanbul. The lack of bright yellow taxis in the Turkish metropolis is no accident. Instead, it's the result of a long-running political fight between the city's mayor, Ekrem İmamoğlu and the main taxi drivers association, called the ITEO. The battle lines were drawn shortly after İmamoğlu's election in 2019. He won the vote twice after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, or AKP, demanded a recount, claiming the first vote was invalid. Imamolu comes from the CHP, or Republican People's Party, a left-wing party that is Turkey's primary opposition. The ITEO is reportedly dominated by loyalists of the AKP. After winning election as mayor, Imamolu pledged to up the number of taxi licenses in Istanbul. The city has expanded by 2 million people just in the past decade to 15.5 million residents. When Erdogan himself was the mayor of Istanbul in the 90s, the city's population was half this amount. But no matter who is in charge, Turkish authorities say that new taxi medallions have not been on sale since the 1960s. In other words, the same 17,395 licenses for taxis have remained for over half a century in this bustling metropolis, even as the population of the city has swelled. The taxi medallions are reportedly held by a cartel of wealthy private owners who lease them to drivers, who have often never met the person who owns their license. Istanbul currently has one taxi for every 900 residents. For comparison, London has just over 12 taxis for every 1,000 people. Demand for taxis has also increased with the COVID-19 pandemic, where many residents opted to take taxis over the city's metro. If you're wondering why Uber hasn't descended to fill the gap, the ride-hailing app did, before also coming to blow with the taxi unions three years ago. The head of one union in Istanbul, Irfan Öztürk, labelled Uber a terrorist organisation and called its users traitors to the nation. The unions brought a legal case against Uber, claiming its drivers were operating without licenses and held protests against the app. Attacks on Uber drivers were unfortunately also common. When tourists take a taxi from the airport and the driver asks for $100 to go to Beşiktaş, we lose these tourists. They will go back to their country and say what happened in the taxi rather than the beauty of our country. 
Uber is a pro-Israeli American company. 25% of its profit goes outside of Turkey. I do not accept this as a Turkish citizen. We haven't beaten up Uber drivers. They beat themselves up and are now trying to fool people by saying taxi drivers attacked Uber drivers. In the end, the powerful unions won their court case. This means if you open your phone to use Uber in Istanbul, the app will summon a yellow taxi for you, if the driver is willing to go where you need to go. In other words, the app now replicates the problem on the street, but on your phone. Shortly after winning election, Imamolu initially pledged to increase the number of taxis in Istanbul by 6,000, an extremely welcome proposition for the city's residents. But then the battle began. Imamolu brought his proposal before Istanbul's Congress to appeal to the city's Transportation Coordination Centre, or UKOME, which oversees all transport in the city. The proposal to up the number of licensed taxis has been rejected nine times due to lobbying by several taxi unions. The battle between Imamolu and the AKP-leaning taxi unions echoes a far larger fight happening all over Turkey. The CHP currently holds mayoral positions in Turkey's major urban centers, Istanbul and the capital Ankara, as well as four of Turkey's 10 biggest cities. With a general election expected before 2023, the CHP are fighting to show that they're capable of running local government in Turkish cities like Istanbul before the next election. For the taxi drivers' unions and AKP supporters in Istanbul, giving in to Imamolu is about more than wrestling a little control of the licenses away from private ownership. It's also about maintaining the status quo and not ceding any gains to the CHP. For the past few months, the taxi situation has been at breaking point. Frustrated residents and visitors to Istanbul were complaining about being refused service by taxi drivers and getting stuck all over the city. The Istanbul municipality received a record 43,000 complaints about taxi driver behavior so far this year. Instead, passengers were resorting to taking dolmush or shared taxis if they could find them, while those that could afford it were taking their own cars aiding congestion all over the city. Imamolu has kept up the fight, bringing his proposal back to the city's Congress in a bid to break the impasse. Alongside expanding the rail network and other services, his latest proposition is one intended to court taxi unions. Imamolu is now offering drivers the chance to join a new publicly owned taxi network his department set up. This means a set salary for drivers, daily meal allowance, bonus pay and a 45-hour working week. The carrot and stick proposal also includes punishment for taxi drivers across Turkey who are rude to passengers or refuse to take them on short trips. But whether these plans will fix the problem is unclear. Eyüp Aksu, the head of one major taxi union in Istanbul, called Imamolu's latest plan unbelievable. No driver will accept this, he told a local news agency. These numbers are not something he can fulfill. He claimed that Imamolu's plans were intended to stoke hostilities between the taxi unions and the city. For now, the situation remains tense. Getting a cab on the streets of Istanbul doesn't appear to be getting any easier anytime soon. For Monocle in Istanbul, I'm Ruth Michelson. 
Thank you very much to Ruth. Well, uh, Latika Burke, who is still with me, if uh, you had tr- eventually managed to get a cab, because of course we have the same <laughs> problem here and we it's do. all down to labour shortages. If you manage to get a cab, you get in your cab, you go to a restaurant, presuming that the restaurant has enough staff to serve you, because many of them now don't. Indeed. And then you try and order lobster, you might be disappointed. Well, yes, a very, very fascinating decision from the British government uh, late in the afternoon yesterday um, was handed down. And essentially, the government has accepted the findings of this huge review conducted by the London School of Economics, which found that uh, lobsters, crabs, crayfish and octopus have feelings. They can feel joy and pain just like you and me. What does that mean? Well, they will now be recognised in a a law that's going through the parliament at the moment that recognises their sentience. And this is quite huge because this bill is going to require any new law that the government creates to recognise the sentience of animals, uh, including now lobsters, crabs and, and octopus. And in the future, when this law, which is highly controversial, um, when this law does pass, it will create a commission which will look at how well the government is respecting the sentience of animals and then the minister responsible will be required to come to the Commons and account for it. So you can see there just how wide and far-reaching this could be because it's not just a law that relates to animal welfare, it's a law that then spreads to any new law in the future. So campaigners have been uh, pushing for this for quite some time because they say it's obvious that crabs and lobsters feel pain and why on earth are we boiling them alive as as some do um, to preserve obviously the freshness of the meat once it's served. And this decision yesterday does not immediately stop that. But I think, Georgina, it's very clear in the future there will be no sort of space in in the British restaurant industry for this to continue happening. Um, The government was at pains to say yesterday this won't affect the current fishing or catchment industry as well. Uh, Campaigners, I think, will be looking at this ruling and certainly uh, Crustacean Compassion, which I spoke to yesterday, said this was the most uh, groundbreaking uh, breakthrough Mm. that they've seen from a government in the West because once they accept this, they think this will have a global spread. And it also just says to people who've never really thought about whether we should be holding crabs and lobsters in tanks uh, at restaurants before we go and choose one to boil alive and eat, that it's not okay, mm. that those those animals can feel pain. So it's a really big, big decision. And we've seen, of course, this comes off the back of brands across some jurisdictions in the world. There is, I think, a creeping tide against how food is produced and, and what animal welfare standards go into that. Yeah, but of course we know that cows, sheep, chickens and all the rest of it are also sentient beings and we still eat them. This is mostly going to affect the way that we kill crustaceans. Exactly. So it's not going to outlaw the eating or catching or preparation or serving of these animals. Potentially what it could do is just ensure that they are stunned before they're killed rather than, say, boiled alive. Now, I don't think there's too many people who would object to this unless, of course, you're vegan. And there will be suspicions, I think, from people who oppose this sentience bill that this movement's all being driven by the vegan community with with this end goal in mind. Now, 
crustacean compassion, which I spoke to yesterday, weren't going down that road at all. They're not saying that people shouldn't eat these. It's simply about the slaughter methods. It's very, very hard to disagree with that. Of course, critics will say, well, this is a slippery slope, uh, but one step at a time here. Yeah. Uh, We were just discussing off air um, My Octopus Teacher, that amazing documentary, which prove beyond a doubt that, that octopuses are sentient beings. Yes, I'm a scuba diver, so I love chasing octopus underwater. And when you see them act, activate their colours, when you see them moving around, uh, there's been numerous documentaries. I've never seen this myself underwater, but I hope to one day. But numerous documentaries showing them using tools, as my octopus teacher demonstrated. And once you see an animal using a tool, you know its intelligence is, is far above what you should then be you know, treating inhumanely. So I think the power of these documentaries, the David Attenboroughs, the My Octopus Teachers, they are having probably more of an impact in changing our understanding of sentience uh, than any kind of LSC review, no offence to the scientists, can Mm. do. Um, But it all comes together. And what do you have? Uh, I think a a very, very uh, intriguing moment in the UK here where they are moving very, very far ahead on animal welfare, which is quite ironic given the post-Brexit criticisms that they would be lowering their standards, that they were going to accept beef um, from countries that don't treat their animals as well, say the United States and Brazil. Uh, It's so far not really coming to fruition, that fear. Mm. Although the the whole trade deal with Australia is making farmers here very, very angry. This is slightly uh, misconstrued uh, or misinformed, I should say, because Australian um, beef that's already exported to the UK has to comply already with EU guidelines. We couldn't import it otherwise. And so for many, many years, Australian farmers who export to the EU have had separate EU supply lines from, and we have excellent tagging and identification in in Australia. And so you can go to a farm and you will see separately raised and reared EU produce compared to the rest of the world or what we might be selling to China or or our domestic market. And so those standards are already in compliance in Australia. So unfortunately, I think the critics here made a bit of of a premature leap in trying to conflate American or Brazilian or Argentinian beef standards with Australian because it's actually really not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Latika, I'm going to end the show now, but I was really looking forward to going off for a bacon sandwich and I think that might not be. As long as it's not squid. <laughs> uh, Latika Burke, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin. And Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.